Hello, and welcome to the Wealthy Woman Lawyer Podcast. We believe all women lawyers deserve to be wealthy women lawyers. Our mission is to provide thought-provoking, powerful, and practical information to help you in creating your own sustainable, wealth-generating law firm without overwork or overwhelm so you can live your best life. I'm your host, Davina Frederick, and I'm so excited for you to meet our guest today. So let's get started. Attorney Christy Cook is the founder of the Bicoastal Mod Law Firm, which serves for-profit and non-profit businesses in both North Carolina and Oregon. As a mission-oriented person, nothing fulfills Christy more than providing legal solutions for purpose-driven businesses, no matter their size. Christy developed her tireless work ethic at Drake Law School and Portland State University's Mark O. Hatfield School of Government and has spent the last decade of her career assisting for-profit and non-profit businesses in achieving their goals. Christy makes use of her diverse experience to help businesses overcome legal obstacles so they can focus on their missions. So we're super excited to have Christy here today as a guest on the Wealthy Woman Lawyer podcast. Welcome, Christy. Hi there. It's so great to be here today. I'm happy that you're here. It has uh, been a minute. We've been trying to schedule this for a while, and I'm glad you're here today. And we were going to have lots to talk about because you have such a unique model for your law firm business, and I want to dive into that. But before we do, I'd love to hear your origin story, your journey to (laughs) becoming an attorney, uh, because I find those so interesting how we all come to the same place in a different way. (laughs) You know, mine was sort of by accident. (laughs) I uh, had a hard time deciding what I wanted to settle on as my major. And so in order to graduate on time, I landed on political science. And what the heck was I going to do with that? Um, So my best friend ended up enrolling in law school. And I thought, well, my grandpa was a lawyer and I loved him. He was awesome. So I'm going to try that. And I didn't really think that I was going to end up practicing. I'd read this article that um, many of the large businesses in the U.S. are actually headed up by attorneys as opposed to MBAs. And I thought, well, if I'm going to spend money on a master's degree or graduate degree of some sort, I might as well make it as diverse as possible so that it can open as many doors as possible since I have no idea what I want to be when I grow up. So I went to law school. And it was a great experience. And when I got out, I didn't sit for the bar right away. Instead, I went and worked for Westlaw. And that was an interesting experience. I served the medium and large law firms in Portland, Oregon. And really, you know, was missing some heart connection there. Uh, So I went ahead and ended up working with this guy who was starting his own law firm after being in big law for a long time. And I found that I really loved helping him launch that business. We were Mm -hmm. very successful in the first years or so that I was there. And I, I found that I really, really connected to launching the business. That said... He was working in in real property and I, you know, it just, it was okay, but it wasn't something I felt passionate about. Right, right. So I decided, you know, I'm going to go back and get my master's degree in public administration and focus on nonprofits or, you know, maybe work up and do policy work or something like that with the government. 
So while I was working with him, I ended up getting my master's degree. And when I had a little bit of time left, I thought, well, geez, I better get some nonprofit experience before I actually, you know, try and get a job in this field when I graduate. So I got hired on because I still hadn't sat for the bar at a huge nonprofit in Portland. At the time, it was a $35 million nonprofit that provides housing, healthcare, and employment services to the homeless. And I got hired as a temp paralegal uh, that was supposed to be a two-month gig. And they they decided to make me their contracts manager once I finished my master's program. And so I thought, well, this is pretty great. And then they begged me to sit for the bar exam and promised that they would make me their director of legal affairs, which to them was essentially general counsel, if I would sit for the bar. And if I wasn't up for it, they were going to bring someone else in to do it because they really were at a point where they needed in-house counsel. And so I was at this crossroads where I thought, oh, I'm never going to practice. You know, I, I had this vision in my mind of, of you know, if I'm going to be a lawyer, I'm going to have to kill myself, work 80 hours a week, spend a ton of, you know, time and energy making rich people richer and all these things. And it was never something I thought I wanted. But now I have this opportunity to do it in the nonprofit sector. And it just felt amazing. So they gave me three months off to study, paid me while I was doing it. It was an offer I couldn't refuse. And, you know, I ended up <laughs> becoming a lawyer when I didn't think I would. And it's just, it's been the absolute best decision I I, I could have made. Wow. Wow. And so you really did have a long sort of circuitous journey to becoming an attorney. I did. I did. Yeah, that's incredible. And I'm sure you learned a lot along the way with all this diverse <laughs> background. What do you think it is about nonprofit that being in the nonprofit world that was a calling for you? Like, but what about that appealed to you so much? So I've always loved to give back my family. I'm an only child and growing up, my my dad was a veteran and we would go and um, in actually downtown Denver, I grew up in Colorado and we would meet with some of the homeless veterans down there and learn their stories. So I had always had a connection to the homeless. And when this opportunity came up, I thought, wow, this is perfect. I'm going to actually be able to give back. And, you know, when you work in the nonprofit sector, you generally won't because the pay is not great. <laughs> the hours are long. It can be stressful. And so you, you're generally going to take that position because you have a heart connection to the mission. And right. the, the great thing about nonprofits is that you have the opportunity because they're always understaffed to wear a million different hats when you're working with them. So for someone who's really feeling like they were getting their footing in their career for the first time, I got to try out a lot of new things, learn a ton about, you know, risk management, compliance, auditing, quality improvement, you know, all these areas that were outside of the practice of law, but so informed the legal work that I did there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, you made the decision, though, to leave this sort of in-house counsel kind of position and open your own firm. What was your motivation behind that? Yeah, absolutely. So for me, by this time I was I was at this nonprofit for almost nine years. And you know, it was still it was still fantastic opportunity and job. But by the time I left, they had become over a hundred million dollar a year nonprofit, were extremely large. And I just thought, you know, I feel like 
there is a niche for helping small businesses and smaller nonprofits that can't afford to have an attorney on staff, but still really need someone in that legal partnership role to support them on a daily basis and to be there, you know, to be a welcoming call when they're thinking of dipping their toe into a fire, you know, as opposed to sort of always using your legal, your attorneys for something, you know, messes that you've gotten yourself into. My whole goal with my, my clients is to have them use me proactively. And so that has always been the vision for my firm. And I, you know, when I was in-house, I, I, when we would have to hire outside counsel for areas that were outside of my expertise, I learned a lot about what I liked in engaging with outside firms and what I despised about it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so I've taken that knowledge as well and have shaped my firm around the the things I thought were great and improved on the things that I thought really, you know, were an outdated model. Oh, you know, we're going to ask the question, the solid <laughs> question of what you like and what you don't like, because I think that'll help people if they're, if they're, you know, functioning in that role. So give us an idea, give us a hint as to some of the things that are good and some of the things that are not so good. Yeah. Exactly. So communication, first of all, is huge. Um, If you say you're going to have something completed by a certain time, either have it completed or at least, you know, let the client know that it's on its way or it's going to be delayed or whatever the issue is. Doing what you say you're going to do. So, you know, if you are an hourly billing attorney and you say you're going to have, you know, a budget, if you're creeping up past that, making sure that your clients are aware that that's happening and giving you a thumbs up or a thumbs down before you embark on, you know, charges that they're not ready to pay, making sure that, especially if you represent businesses, that you really understand your client. Templates, the legal advice you give should not be cookie cutter. And I always felt that hourly billing didn't lend itself to getting to truly getting to know your clients, which makes you a better attorney for them. And so for that reason, I use a flat fee model to the extent that I can, which I'd say is probably about 95% of what I do. And also, you know, in particular, what I loved, especially being in the nonprofit sector, but I think this is applicable to all businesses, to be willing to educate your client as well. Don't just hand them the document and say, okay, here's your template, your contract template, use it going forward. No, walk them through it so they understand why you put things in there that you put in there where other folks may object to it and, you know, educate your your client a little bit about why you did what you did. It will help them feel better about the, the work products that you're giving them. Right, right. I think that's great advice. Definitely. I think we forget sometimes that there's a counselor part of it. Mm-hmm. That, you know, the, the attorney and counselor at law part, you know, and that counseling part is really just as important, if not more important, a lot of times than being able to advise people. And to do that, you really need to know your client very well. Let's talk about your pricing because you do have, so yours is the mod law, it's law firm, right? And you wanted a very specifically to have a modern law firm that used a lot of technology and worked 
made it uh, easy for people to engage with you online. And one of the things that you've done is you've actually put your pricing online. And I know that can be controversial with some attorneys. What what made you decide to do that? You know, I have always been a wear it on your heart, uh, wear your heart on your sleeve kind of person. I've always probably been an oversharer. And uh, I just feel, you know, a drive to be authentic. And for me, and, you know, before I started my firm, I spent a lot of time um, looking at what other lawyers were doing. And Regina Irene, for example, does the same thing. She's very successful. And, you know, her her reasoning behind doing this and being upfront with your pricing is so that people can self-select, right? They can actually, a lot of people are already intimidated when they're calling a lawyer for the first time. And then they have to ask the awkward question of, well, how much is this going to cost me? And usually lawyers are like, well, I bill by the hour, so I have no idea. (laughs) And I just didn't feel like that was fair to, to my clients. And so I have all of my starting prices for my most common services on my website. And people come to me then when we have our initial consult informed, they've already made the decision that they can afford to work with me and feel confident in the value that I provide. Uh, I don't have the back and forth of, of, you know, begging for different pricing. I'm actually very passionate about the flat fees because it means that I treat all of my clients equally. They all, you know, are, are getting billed the same unless I've applied, you know, I have nonprofit discounts and things like that. But it just, it just from right out of the gate sets the relationship tone as one that is going to be upfront, open and honest. And I can't tell you how many clients I have that say, you know, I I get a lot of client referrals from local colleges and and the colleges will give out lawyer names. Uh, They have to give out at least three because they're government funded. And I can't tell you how many of the folks end up choosing me because they hopped on my website and they're like, great, everything is here that I need to know. I feel good about this discussion. I'm not going to waste my time talking with her. So it's, it's, it's been fantastic. I, I'd been warned against it and I, I followed my instincts and it's, it's paid off. What were, what were the warnings against it? What were some of the things that people said to you? Yeah, you know, one, that it was a bad idea to, you know, it was too transparent. It can't possibly reflect every interaction that you have with someone. Uh, what if something costs more? And, and I mean, my website does say that they're the starting prices. Obviously, there's room to change things if, if a project is a little bit outside of the norm, but it rarely happens. I feel like it's a difference between hourly billing versus value-based billing. And so what is the value of the service that I'm providing to my clients? And that's really how I came up with, with my prices and in tracking a lot of, of my time to make sure that things are still, you know, that are priced fairly for me as well. But yeah, you know, a lot of attorneys, old school attorneys, felt like it was it was too much information and and that I was going to shoot myself in the foot if I did it because you know I don't know if it's ego or whatever but it always feels like lawyers want to have this mystique around their law firm and that's just not me <laughs> so yeah 
So you you said that it's value-based pricing, right? So mm-hmm. I'd love for you to dive a little deeper into that and how you de- how you determine the value. Because I think that often gets attorneys stumped when they're trying to assess the value of the services they offer. Some of the challenges are, you know, people don't really know how long it takes them to do a project because they don't track time and they think they think that flat fees kind of, you know, they don't have to track time if you have flat fees or they think, well, what is the value of a contract that could potentially save somebody, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, but we don't, you know, like if if they didn't have the contract, what is the value of this, right? So define for us what you mean when you say value, how you assess the value of what you offer. Oh, that's a great question. So I started out by tracking my time. I also, I think coming from, you know, being in-house and knowing how, when I was in-house, how long things would take me to produce, becoming familiar when we did use outside attorneys for overflow work or whatever it might've been with their billing models. And, and then also just doing a ton of research. There are actually a lot of lawyers out there who are starting to put their prices on, who especially follow this flat fee model, uh, starting to put their prices out there. And I, I feel like I have probably cyber stalked at least a thousand different law firm uh, websites. And right. and you, fi- you find out a lot of information that way. So, you know, that's the market research. And, and then what I feel like is a fair request of my clients to pay based on my experience, my education, and the value that I I give to them in that educational piece that I mentioned along Mm -hmm. the lines of, you know, here's your your contract template, but we're going to walk through it. And I want to make sure that you understand why things say what they do. I've provided alternative language for you in case you get pushed back in one section and, and it empowers them as well. So giving them that empowering piece. And that's really how I came about it. And, you know, there were a few times that I've had to adjust things that I realized over time, I actually probably had started too low and were more of a time commitment than I thought. But there's a a great attorney, her name is Britta Long, and she has a book called The Happier Attorney. And she has a Facebook group and an online training program. And she's an estate attorney and she's developed flat fee models throughout her career. And so she has written a book about that process. And so I also took, you know, that class and learned a lot from her and and her idea around value-based pricing for flat fees. And, you know, it's worked out well. Good, good, good. So I appreciate you sharing that and kind of diving into it a little bit, because I know that's that's a lot of the challenge for attorneys is how do you value it? What do you say? And I, you did say that you you still track time. Do you not? Mm-hmm. I do. Yeah. I've, um, you know, things now that I've done a hundred times, I'm pretty certain on what the, the time component is, but certainly when I'm working on something new or it's something newer, I will still track my time and, and sort of have a look back um, quarterly to see if if the pricing reflects the effort. Yeah. One of the um, kind of interesting things about the billing model is that you may, over time, you get you get faster mm-hmm. <laughs> at things. Whereas if you have value-based pricing, we've assigned a value to it. And if you get if you get faster at it, 
And, you know, you're still getting that same value of what it's worth, right? What you think it's worth to the client, not based on, you know, well, it only took me 15 minutes. It used to take me an hour to do this, right? Mm -hmm, And now I've gotten mm -hmm. better at it. So I've gotten better at it. I would make less money if I'm charging it for only 15 minutes, right? Right. Um, And and why should your early clients, when you're less experienced, be the ones bearing that cost? <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, right, right. Your um, have you had people react uh, like prospective clients react negatively to prices they see online? I guess they never even interact with you if they if they look at this and they go, "Oh, I can't afford this." Right? They just don't even interact with you, so you wouldn't know, right? Or have you had that? Um, so if I, if it's someone who's come to me through referral and maybe they didn't hop on my website, they haven't seen my prices on there. Um, and so sometimes, you know, folks will just as with all lawyers, you know, they're always going to try and bargain, but I've never had anyone complain about flat fee billing. Every single one of my clients is so relieved to have it. And I explained to them, you know, the few areas where I can't do flat fee billing is where we don't have certainty. So, for example, um, negotiations. So if I'm helping someone with an asset purchase, it might be more of a hybrid model where getting the documents to a certain stage is the flat fee, but then negotiations are billed hourly um, or, or, you know, edits after a certain number are billed hourly. Because, you know, some deals can go off the rails and clients totally understand that. They just want everything to be transparent and upfront so that, you know, I'll never forget when I was in-house, I had had a conversation with an attorney at a big law firm and they were doing some work for us. And a conversation was, was simply like, oh, I wonder what the law is on this. It wasn't a, hey, can you research this for me? Nothing like that. It was a simple comment um, among a half hour conversation. I wonder what the law is on this. And we got a bill as a nonprofit for $10,000 for a research project that this, you know, newer associate just took and run with without any sort of directive from us. And it is something that will never leave my memory <laughs> as, <laughs> as the client, how shocking and appalling that situation was. And so... You know, clients are are always upfront, uh, are, are always going to appreciate it when I'm being upfront about billing. It's it's generally, especially for small businesses, it's generally their number one concern. And then comes the relationship with the attorney. So right. you know, you're always going to have clients that are shopping around for the cheapest attorney and or free advice. And so you, all of us, have to deal with that. But um, but they appreciate the transparency. Right, right. Well, shifting gears a little bit, I'd love to know why you decided to be bi-coastal, particularly in North Carolina and Oregon. Uh, what, what led to that decision? Yeah, so um, I, my husband's from Oregon, and I was living in Oregon when I was working at the nonprofit, and that's where I first started my law firm in April of 2017. And Portland is exploding with growth, and I think maybe the lack of sunshine was getting to me after being there about 11 years, and so I kind of thought it'd be fun to be on the East Coast and realize that, you know, if we were ever going to move, now was the time, you know, because my firm was just starting, and once it got established, it would be much more difficult. So, 
we came out to North Carolina. We'd read so, so many wonderful things about it. We'd actually never been here and fell in love with it. And that was Halloween of 2017. And by January 2018, we were out here. It took me about 11 months. Things moved a little bit slower with the North Carolina bar to get my reciprocity. But yeah, you know, so I've just kept my Oregon license because I have a you know, handful of Oregon clients still. And I've really established my firm here in North Carolina. And I've always been a virtual firm. I don't mm-hmm. do any litigation. Everything's transactional. So pre-COVID, I was always a virtual firm. And uh, COVID actually made it a little bit easier, you know, to get people now to hop on Zoom and feel comfortable with not, you know, trekking to the lawyer's office to meet with them. And and so it's just really been, you know, the Zoom world has really been a, a godsend for my practice and has made it easier to be a, a bi-coastal attorney. Do you have any uh, one else working with you or is this something where you're kind of keeping it small, keeping it all and, you know, like working this way or do you have a team that's helping you or what's your growth trajectory been? So it's, it's definitely interesting time. I've never had this idea of becoming a mogul, (laughs) Um, but I also don't want to turn clients away. And so I am at a point now where I've had a virtual paralegal that I work with and I've had a virtual assistant that I work with both for operations and then marketing as well. And I am now at the point where I've decided I'm I'm definitely going to have to bring on an actual, you know, team. And so I'm going to start and uh, actually this weekend I'm drafting my my uh, job posting for a law firm coordinator and then my hope is that I can hold out until maybe mid-2022 and bring on an attorney uh, just to share some of the work. <laughs> it is yeah. de- We're definitely getting at capacity, which is fantastic. And so I'm really excited for what the future holds. And I'm, I'm rolling out this membership model. And I think that it's really going to sort of explode. And I will definitely need some help covering it. Right. I love that. That sounds very exciting for you. How, yes, how do you feel? It's great. Yeah. How do you feel about the, you know, what thoughts do you have around managing a, a team? And, you know, you have some, I'm sure you have some experience in your background with some of the jobs you've had. Have you managed other people before? I have. Yeah. I oversaw the compliance department at the nonprofit. And then we had two other attorneys and a paralegal that, supported the legal department. And so I have experience managing folks and, and I'm excited by it. You know, I love mentoring and, and I'm shaping these positions so they can be something that grows and evolves with the firm and, and allows a true team centered mentality. So, so the success of the firm is all of our success. And so, yeah, I'm excited about it. I think it's going to be great. And I'm also looking forward to not wearing all the hats. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Well, that'd be wonderful. And we don't realize until we start hiring other people, we're like, wow, I really am doing the job of, (laughs) you know, multiple (laughs) people here. We start putting that down on word chart. We realize maybe I, this is why I'm tired. Can you tell us a little bit about your marketing? Because I know your law firm is virtual, and so you conduct all business online. So what have you chosen to do for marketing? Have you followed the same philosophy for marketing 
or did you establish yourself, you know, locally with in-person, you know, events and connections or, or what did you do when you moved to a new state? How did you get up and sort of get those new clients there in North Carolina? Yeah, so I didn't know anyone in North Carolina uh, when we moved here as far as, you know, in the legal field. And so I thought, you know, I am just going to, as January of last year, I'm just going to have to have a million coffees because very relationship driven here, uh, as you would imagine in the South. And I thought, well, I'm just going to have to have a million lunches, a million coffees and just really get to know B2B folks. Uh, That was my approach was to reach out to other business folks who support businesses. And so I I just thought that's what it was going to be. And then COVID hit. And all of a sudden, all of these networking groups moved online and a lot of them were free. So you could hop into a Zoom and 30 people would be in there and you could use the Zoom chat to send you know, little hello messages to people and, and an invite on your, your Calendly or Acuity or whatever. And, Hey, can we do a virtual coffee? And I was looking back at my notes and my CRM and I literally must have had 250 or more one-to-one meetings last year with people in in the beat. B2B world because you you meet and then the other thing is you meet one person and they're like oh I know 12 other people you should meet and so um by the end of last year I was a little exhausted but now as a result most of my business is referral based it's it, this community in particular you know I was, I was sort of surprised you know because Portland is all about supporting small business and sort of down with the man kind of thing and right, um, right. And I just didn't expect that when I moved here that that it would be so supportive of small business. And there are so many networking groups and everyone here is it's not, oh, what can you do to help me? It's what can I do to help you? Because I know that it it will benefit me in the long run as well. People are just so wonderful here in the triangle. And and so it's 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 allowed my business to be largely referral based. And then I just started dipping my toes into social media and and going from there but but yeah it's really just just taken off through those those zoom meetings and i i'm thrilled at at how it worked out (laughs) yeah it's very interesting that you uh had so many meetings and those meetings were were they all of those 250 were they all marketing meetings or does that include client meetings and stuff like that on zoom um, no, that was, those were just focused on getting to know people and build relationships with other entrepreneurs that are supporting small business and uh, figuring out how we could support each other. And it's great for me because now when my clients and my business clients, you know, they're launching their business, they're growing their business and they need other professionals like CPAs, IT people, marketing folks, you know, you name it, these, all these businesses that support small business. I have so many contacts of folks that I vetted that I can also refer to. And it makes my clients feel like, wow, you're, you're providing so much extra value to me because I feel confident in anyone that you're recommending. So they sort of get the mod law stamp of approval. um, And we're sending out referrals that way to to support them as well. And it's good for me because I want to make sure that the professional village of folks that support my business clients 
are also people that believe in in working collaboratively with the other members of the professional village supporting their business clients. So mm-hmm. it's it's been really great. And you are you are where in North Carolina? What part of North Carolina? So I'm in Cary, which is right between Raleigh and Durham. Uh, that's where I thought I might be. You were in Cary, and I was um, trying to get you to sort of you know give us a that sense of place so people know where that is because a lot mm-hmm. of people may not have heard of Cary, but they've heard of yeah. Raleigh, Durham. You know. Also, going back to this networking, could you share some advice or guidance for for others who struggle with? networking um, <laughs> and how to have those conversations with people they they don't know like what to say or what to do or how to talk with people since you've done that so successfully maybe you can give us a little insight into you know how that has worked so well for you yeah no it's a great question so going back to you know this idea that I was going to have to do a million coffees and lunches was like my nightmare scenario because Although I think I'm good at looking like I'm an extrovert, I really am an introvert. And the idea of going to a big networking in-person event and having to sort of walk up and like be the new kid in school and say, hey, can we talk? Can I join into your conversation? Just seemed like a nightmare to me. And so when everything moved to Zoom and I could just very easily through a, a chat you send an individual message like, hey, you know, I see that you support small businesses. So do I. I think that we could probably find a way that we can support each other. I'd love to grab a virtual coffee if you have some time. Here's my link just to make it easy on them. So then we're already, you know, joining this this coffee with this idea in mind of how can what can we learn about each other to figure out how we can better mutually support our clients. And I really just took those opportunities to get to know them. My whole intent in those meetings was to learn as much as I could about the folks that I was meeting. I didn't feel like it was time, you know, the Christie show, right? Um, But what happens is they generally have the same goal. So then they want to learn about me as well. And it gives you the opportunity to share your model and who your ideal clients are and those sorts of things. But really doing a little bit of of background research, hop on their LinkedIn, look at their website if they have one, try and figure out, you know, what their interests are, especially if they have a bio page or something on their website. And just, you know, if you're at all nervous about networking, write down five questions that you can ask. And you will find that for these one-to-one meetings, oftentimes there'll be similar questions and it becomes something that becomes somewhat automatic. And just like this podcast, when people start talking about things, it can spin you off into new questions. And, you know, just go to every, if you're nervous at all about networking, go into every situation with the sole purpose of learning about that person and not talking about yourself and with a curious mind. And that will help so much. <laughs> right. Right. It's one of my tips that I have for people as a, being a guest on the podcast is if you're a guest on a podcast, you know, go out and look and see who this person is that you're talking to and what their podcast is all about. Oh, it, is, it is unbelievable the number of times that I've had people come on my podcast and I could tell that they, they have a, you know, they don't know anything about it or me or what I do. And it's, it's really interesting how people, you know, often don't think about going, using those social media tools to 
learn a little bit about somebody so you can ask some good questions and get to know them. And, and I think it's such a gift to live in an age where we have social media available so we can find out so much about a person and find the, the areas of commonality that we have. And it's just a few clicks away what to create a whole list of conversation starters with somebody, you know? So, uh, well, let's wrap up with you telling us how we can connect with you on social media. So I would love to contact, be in touch with anyone who has questions. Please feel free to reach out to me. My social media handle across all social media is at modlawfirm.com, or I'm sorry, at modlawfirm. So M-O-D lawfirm. And every social media site uses that same handle. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Chrissy. We really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a blast. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of the Wealthy Woman Lawyer podcast. If you have, we invite you to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. The more five-star reviews we have, the more women law firm owners will be able to positively impact. Your thoughts and opinions are so important to us. If you are a woman law firm owner who wants to scale your law firm to a million dollars or more in gross annual revenue and do it in a way that's sustainable and feels good to you, then we invite you to join us in the Wealthy Woman Lawyer League. The League is a community of highly intelligent, goal-oriented, and driven women law firm owners who are excited to support one another on their journeys to becoming wealthy women lawyers. We'll be sharing so much in the league in the coming year, including the exclusive million dollar law firm framework that until now, I've only shared with my private one-to-one clients. For more information and to join us, go now to www.wealthywomanlawyer.com slash league. That's www.wealthywomanlawyer.com slash league. League is spelled L-E-A-G-U-E. We look forward to seeing you soon in the league.